Well, good morning, church. Praise the Lord. Amen. Great singing. You're visiting. Want to welcome you to Littleton Bible Chapel. It's good to have you with us. Want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans. If you're visiting, we just started a series about a month ago in the book of Romans, chapter 12. And uh, we're going to work our way through Romans 12. I think we just had a meeting this morning with our elders. We're going to finish Romans as well and maybe jump back and do chapters 9 through 11. So we're going to have the oddest uh, strategy for covering the last part of Romans you've ever seen. But I want to have you stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Also, we'll be reading Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. Ephesians 4.21, we'll start there. This is God's Word. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to be together. Uh, We don't take it lightly that we can gather in freedom and peace and worship you. We think of many places around the world where this is an impossibility. So we thank you and pray that you would receive the worship that is due to you. Due to your holy name, I I pray that you would renew our minds, show us what it means to be conformed to this world and thinking like the world, and show us how to be transformed, transfigured, changed. Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we come to one of the clearest, most poignant most relevant passages on the Christian life. If I could pick a verse to to speak on to a youth group, to a a camp, to a college group, I think it would be this verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. But honestly, the same could be said about any age group. All of us need to hear this message. All of us need to heed this message. All of us need to apply this message from the Apostle Paul. Remember, The Apostle started his argument in chapter 12, verse 1 with this therefore, and that is his pattern. A doctrine leads to application. It leads to a therefore. Uh, The gospel leads to godliness. It has to. It must. It does. He's given the motivation. His basis for action is the mercies of God. He appeals to them, exhorts them based on the gospel, basically. And then last week we looked at his initial exhortation to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or the word really is logical, 
worship. The sinner now lives for God. Our, our whole selves, our bodies, our body parts, our limbs, our eyes, our ears, hands, feet, it belongs to God. And we worship Him. We use it to serve Him. Not serve ourselves, but serve Him. That's the logical thing to do based on the gospel. So he continues his argument in verse 2, and he elaborates on what this sacrifice looks like and acts like and talks like and thinks like. And he says it really in two different ways, and that's our outline for this morning. Negatively, do not be conformed to this world, and positively, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What an incredible statement. As the title of this message suggests, the Apostle Paul wants a church full of nonconformists. So let's look at what it means to be conforming and transforming, starting with this first statement, do not be conformed to this world. Now the first thing Paul does is tell them to not do something. And this again is a pattern of Paul. Do not be. There are, there are certain things they are to not do. Uh, there are certain things they need to do. But he starts with the negative. Don't be conformed. I want us to consider this a little bit. In fact, turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. I want you to see this because it's almost the exact same idea in our text. Titus 2.11, the apostle, same apostle says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then positively to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. That's almost exactly what Paul is saying in our verse. The grace of God, therefore, we renounce ungodliness. We say no, do not be conformed. Don't do it. We live in a, a world that says no to hardly anything, but we are to not do certain things because of the mercies of God. That's really repentance. It's the life of repentance. So part of the Christian life, you need to see this, is, is renouncing certain things, saying no to certain things. A grace that doesn't produce change, a grace that doesn't produce fruit is a fraud. It's an imposter. It's not the real thing. It's a fake imitation of grace. So the first step in the Christian life really is leaving, uh, denying, renouncing the old life. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, uh, said this. He said, we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. When we are surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly to be told that in the Christian life there is to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it does not feel hard to us, we're not really letting it speak to us. Of course, this environment of, of not saying no fits exactly into our natural disposition because since the fall of man, we do not like to deny ourselves. This is a, a major hang-up for people riding on the fence of Christianity. Uh, there's an unwillingness to renounce certain things. Uh, but we need to renounce Idols reject cultural diseases around us. Uh, the things that need to be renounced may not even necessarily be inherently evil things, but they're part of the old life. They're part of the old pattern that needs to be renounced and denied, put to death. So in Titus, Paul tells them, renounce ungodliness. 
Ungodliness is everything that's anti-God. It's a, really a mindset. Uh, the world system, which is anti-Christ, anti-Scripture, anti-Christian. We're, we're not to delight in it. We're not to partner with it. We're not to laugh along with it. We're to renounce it. And then he says, renouncing worldly passions. Worldly passions are just expressions or impulses that express themselves through the body. It's interesting, thinking of verse 1 of chapter 12, through the body is actually how we worship the Lord. We don't just give our heart to the Lord, we actually give our body. We're not Gnostics that just think the body's bad. No, it's actually good, and we use it to serve the Lord. Sexual sins would be an easy example, but also hatred, selfishness, jealousy. We renounce it. Uh, We don't entertain it. We don't coddle it. When you renounce someone, you say, I want nothing to do with you. We have no fellowship any longer. We're to do that with worldly passions. And again, similar to Romans 12 and Titus 2, he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. You could say, that's the will of God, as verse 2 says in our passage. This is the transformation that that mercy and grace produce. It trains us to be self-controlled, self-controlled over bodily impulses, desires, sex, food, sleep. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit to be self-controlled, evidence, actually, of, of grace. Trains us to live upright lives, be above reproach, have integrity, live godly lives. And that will be Paul's argument for the rest of Romans. William Mounts, one of the finest New Testament Scholars said it this way, salvation never stops with redemption, but always moves to sanctification. There is no salvation apart from discipleship. Paul is not teaching the annulment of grace. He's teaching the full measure of grace. Grace leads to obedience and a changed life. A a number of people back in the 70s and 80s started teaching that a, a person could receive Jesus as Savior but not submit to Him as Lord. Obedience became almost optional. Uh, and that's really false. Now, to be clear, we are saved by God's grace alone, not by our obedience. But let's also be clear, a true Christian is obedient to his Savior who's also Lord. A profession of faith where someone claims Christ but is living in disobedience is a false profession. Uh, You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple of the Lord. Grace teaches us, as Paul says, to be self-controlled, upright, godly. That's the evidence. You, You say no to things. You mustn't be conformed. Now, what does conform mean? The word conform means here in in our verse 2 to be guided by. The word is used only one other time in the New Testament. Peter uses this word when he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. It's different now. It's a different game. It's a different ball game. Uh, Don't be guided by, influenced by the values you had when you were an unbeliever. Those are the B.C. days before Christ. Those days are over. You've got new values now. You've got new priorities now. Your identity is totally different now. So do not be conformed. And then he says to this world. The word here is really the word age. In in, in Jewish eschatology, there really had two 
Two sections, this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. Well, the first explanation of spiritual worship, logical worship, is to not be conformed uh, to this world, this age. In other places, Paul uses this word in Galatians. He calls it this evil age. Second Corinthians 4, he says, the God of this age, he's talking about Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Notice what he blinds, minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Love that. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look, the wisdom of this age is a joke. It's a joke. It's foolishness. John says, the Apostle John, we know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So you get the idea that this world, this age, is in direct opposition to God. Uh, Don't pattern yourself, don't pattern your life, don't pattern your marriage, don't pattern your family around what the world thinks is a good idea, because the world is insane. J.B. Phillips, the old translation had a classic uh, translation, I guess, of this verse. He said, stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold. I love that. Stop believing the world. Stop imitating the world. Stop admiring the world. Stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be brainwashed by the world is what Paul is saying here. The world hates Christ. The world hates the Scriptures. The world hates holiness. R.C. Sproul, in his classic book, The Holiness of God, has a chapter, uh, God in the Hands of uh, Angry Sinners. And he says this, he says, By nature, our attitude toward God is not one of mere indifference. It's a posture of malice. We oppose his government and refuse his rule over us. Our natural hearts are devoid of any affection for him. They are cold, frozen to his holiness. By nature, the love of God is not in us. It's not enough to say that the natural man views God as an enemy. We must be more precise. God is our mortal enemy. He represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. His repugnance to us is absolute, knowing no lesser degrees. No amount of persuasion by men or argumentation from philosophers or theologians can induce us to love God. We despise his very existence and would do anything in our power to rid the universe of his holy presence. If God were to expose his life to our hands, he would not be safe for a second. We would not ignore him. We would destroy him. That's how the world feels about Jesus. The world hates Christ. The world crucified Christ. That's us apart from regeneration. And the world and the system of this age is anti-Christ. So it's reasonable, it's logical that our worship and our lives do not conform to the lives and systems that put the Lord on the cross. Don't conform to this age. The world is antithetical to Christ and his mission. It's not helpful, it's not correct. Following the world will only be a hindrance to you, so don't be conformed to it. It's, It's like a mental reprogramming. Uh, Douglas Moo at Wheaton College put it this way. This reprogramming of the mind 
does not take place overnight, but is a lifelong process by which our way of thinking is to resemble more and more the way God wants us to think. I think that's so well said. This is a lifelong process of being conformed, or rather transformed to the image of Christ. It's a continual process of thinking correctly, thinking differently than the world. It's not a one and done. You don't do this one time and it's over. We're constantly analyzing how are we being conformed to the world and we're transforming into the image of Christ through the truth of his word. Uh, Church, there are forces and influences all around us. We can so easily become the proverbial frog in the kettle. The spirit of this age is so alluring, so deceptive, so subtle. It doesn't take long before we start thinking like the world. Living like the world, caving in to the pressures, strong pressures of the world. The way the the world thinks about eternity, don't conform. The way the world thinks about materialism, don't conform. The way the world thinks about money, don't conform. The way the world thinks about marriage, don't conform. The way the world thinks about family, don't conform. The way the world thinks about work and leisure, don't conform. The way the world thinks about sexuality, don't conform. Let me give you an Old Testament example of how this works practically. You can read it on your own time, but in Genesis 13, it's the story of Lot and his wife. And when you study the story of Lot, it's a, really a case study on the progression of worldliness. When you read the story, you see how Lot really initially just makes an innocuous business decision, and he heads towards Sodom. Uh, the land couldn't support both Abram and Lot, so they decide to separate. Lot looks up, takes the good land, which happens to look a lot like Egypt, we're told. And it's in the direction of Sodom. Didn't seem like a big deal, just a business decision, really. He ends up moving into the city of Sodom, and somewhere along the line, he not only moves into the city, he ends up on city council. He's sitting by the gate. The city is so wicked, the Lord decides to destroy the city. He sends two angels to deliver Lot and his family. It's a bit of a graphic, R-rated story. But when the men of Sodom come to ravage the visitors, Lot is delivered by the Lord with a couple angels. And when the angels tell Lot to get out of the city, we're told, quote, Lot lingers. And his family tree ends up becoming some of the most antagonistic people to the children of Israel, the Amorites, the Moabites, some of the most wicked his great-grandkids. And there was never a decision that we're told of in the Scriptures that where Lot said, you know what, I'm going to get secular. I'm kind of thinking I want to get worldly. I'm kind of thinking I want my kids and grandkids to reject God and His Word. There was no decision we're told of. It was just little decisions along the way. Uh, what about Lot's wife? Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, uh, comments on this. He says, just think about the privileges of Lot's wife. In the days of Abraham and Lot, true saving knowledge of God was very rare. Uh, There was no Bibles, no ministers, no churches, no books, no missionaries. The knowledge of God really was confined to just a couple families. So in this sense, she was a very privileged woman. She had a godly Man is her husband. Her uncle was Abraham. 
She probably heard firsthand from Abraham about God's plan of salvation and intervention. She witnessed miracles. But her life can be summed up with the words, she looked back. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. And you know the story. Lot was graciously warned by the Lord to flee. Explicitly, he's told not to look back. Don't look back, but she did. And it revealed her character. She was a woman who outwardly professed faith, but inwardly was dead to God. It was a heart, really, of disobedience that was revealed. She did the opposite of what God had asked. And it revealed a proud heart of unbelief. She seemed to doubt as though God's word is not true. And it revealed a secret love for the world. And Ryle comments on this and says, Her affections were in the godless city of Sodom. She wasn't a murderer. She wasn't an adulteress. She wasn't a thief. But she claimed to follow Yahweh and yet love the world. James says in the New Testament, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Look at this next statement, be transformed. Paul not only wants the church in Rome to not do certain things, he wants them to do certain things. They need to be transformed. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's start with this word transformed. The word is where we get the word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar and a butterfly. It's the same use, word used of Jesus when he was transfigured. The only other time the word is used is when Paul says believers are transformed into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another. In fact, I want to read that verse. It's a great commentary on our passage. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So how does that transformation happen? How does the metamorphosis happen? The transfiguration happen? It happens through the renewal of the mind. Not, it's not an external transformation. It's internal. Starts with the mind. Starts with how you think, what you think. And that 2 Corinthians passage, I think, is key here. It's almost identical. Paul says that transformation happens when we behold the glory of Christ. Now, this is after the resurrection and ascension. They didn't see Christ. But Paul is saying the veil has been removed, the veil covering the mind, and that by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, those believers can behold the glory of Christ by faith through His Word, same as we can. In other words, it's in the mind. It's with the truth of the Word. It's with the Scriptures. Now, our Scripture reading I, I picked for this reason Paul says, again, something very similar. He explains the process. He says, assuming that you've heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Don't do those things. Don't be conformed. Then he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is how transformation happens. Our minds need to be renewed. Our bodies are corrupted by the fall, so are our minds. The battlefield is the mind. All of us have a war in the mind, war of ideas, a war between the words of men and the words of God. It's a truth war. And the way to not conform to the world, the way to be transformed, is to fill your mind with truth. The truth in God's Word, that's how transformation happens, is we, we hear the Word and we say, oh, okay, I'll do that. I, I'm not kidding when I say that it's really that simple. We come together as an assembly, as a church, we read the Scriptures, and essentially what we're doing here together is we're saying, oh, okay, I'll do that. That's what God says will conform and change and amend and repent and we'll do that. We'll think like that now. We'll adjust in those ways. That's transformation. That's holiness. That's being a nonconformist to the world. Church, this is a call to be nonconformist. This whole idea is really of transformation is really called sanctification. The process of being made more and more holy more and more like Christ. It's a process. If you're in Christ, this is happening to you, even right now. You, are, you may struggle with sin. In fact, you will struggle with sin until your dying day. And you, may, in fact, may feel the intensity of that more and more as you grow. But you will, rest assured, be transformed into the image of Christ. It's, it's a process. And you have to actually put some effort into that, as we'll see in just a minute. This verse made me think of the great awakening in early American history. There was a revival. It was an awakening. It was a great awakening. People were getting converted to Christ in the 13 colonies, and a lot of it was good, but not all of it. There was a lot of emotionalism. There was a lot of sort of flamboyant, odd things happening. People were fainting. People were making loud, weird noises. People were claiming that these oddities were signs of revival, well, enter Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a pastor during this time, and he was very curious and, and studious about the signs of revival and, and what it was, true and false revival. Was this from God or not? True revival or not? So he became a student on this topic. He wrote a book, very good book, called Religious Affections, or A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. I commend it to you. It's a good book. But he wrote the booklet to help folks discern the real work of God from the false. Now listen to just the headings, the subheadings of this book. Great effects on the body are no sign of revival. Fluency and fervor are no sign. They that are excited by things are no sign. That, that they come with text of Scripture is no sign. Religious affections of many kinds are no sign. Joys following in a certain order are no sign. Much time and zeal and duty are no sign. Much expression of praise is no sign. Great confidence is no certain sign. Affecting relations are no sign. And Edwards made a case that none of these things are actual evidence of the Holy Spirit's work, but there is evidence of God's work. And he said it was holiness. And he said this, Christian growth, I believe, 
cannot be defined by the excitement of a man's faith or how much he praises God or his acts of charity and servanthood or how much scripture he's read or has memorized or even how much time he spends in prayer, but rather by the increasing level of holiness in his life along with Christian self-denial. So, so here's the sign of the Lord's movement. Are you less and less conformed to this world? Are you more and more transformed to the image of Christ? So part of being a nonconformist is transformation. Listen to some of these passages on sanctification and transformation. I'm just going to read them. Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the deeds of darkness. Romans 13.14, make no provision for the flesh. Matthew 5.29, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Ephesians 4, let him who steals, steal no longer. Stop it. 2 Peter 1, for this reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, Godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's revival. That's reformation. That's nonconformity. So we need to work hard at our sanctification. We need to work hard at not conforming, but being transformed. You cannot be a lazy dud. As a Christian, you can't be passive with your sin and, and conformity. You cannot be passive. There's no middle ground here. Listen to some of these quotes on this topic. Again, J.C. Ryle. It is wise to teach believers that they ought not to think so much of fighting and struggling against sin, but rather to yield themselves to God and be passive in the hands of Christ. He's asking, is it wise to teach that? He says, I doubt it. A holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling are spoken of as characteristic of a true Christian. We go to war against sin. We don't make peace with it. Make every effort, Peter says. John Stott, the Anglican, put it this way. Negatively, we must totally repudiate everything we know to be wrong. And not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is not an unhealthy form of repression, pretending that evil does not exist in us and refusing to face it. It's the opposite. We have to pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. Then you have have really dealt with it. Or as Jesus graphically expressed it, we must gouge out our offending eye and cut off our offending hand or foot. This message of sanctification, transformation, not being conformed, is, this is not a popular message today. Today we prefer a cheap kind of grace, a sanctification that doesn't require much of us. Many so-called Christians, I think, have a false sense of security that because they have prayed a prayer or cried and felt emotion because of their sin or attend a church, or, or just merely profess, yeah, I'm a Christian. That, that means they're a Christian. Do I need to point out that just because a person claims Christ doesn't mean Christ has claim of him or her? Do I need to point out that just because a person says she's a Christian, that that person is therefore a Christian? No. 
If a person has in fact received God's righteousness in grace, let him prove it by renouncing certain things, by making every effort, by being transformed day by day more and more into the image of Christ. Paul says, this is why I'm preaching. I'm preaching until Christ is formed in you. This is Paul's message. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. So let's get specific. Actually, we're going to come back to this verse again in the weeks to come. But I want to think practically about non-conforming and transformation. First of all, let's just acknowledge the obvious reality that there is an enormous amount of pressure for us to conform. I don't know if you've ever seen the utter destruction of a tsunami. They're powerful they are pervasive. They are destructive. I vividly remember the year 2004 when there was an earthquake in the Indian Ocean brought one of the most destructive tsunamis in, the, in history ever, ever recorded. Some of you were living there in Indonesia. If you remember, the death toll kept rising and rising from hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. I think the final death tally in Indonesia alone was over 220,000 people. A tsunami is a powerful and destructive force. And I think it's the perfect illustration of what we're living in today. We are living in a tsunami of secularism. It's a tsunami of conformity. A tsunami of worldliness. Earlier we looked at the example of Lot, but really Lot's story becomes Israel's story. Worldliness and godless secularism has actually always been an issue for the people of God. Israel was to reflect God in holiness, reflect God in His nature, of His holiness on this earth. But the chief problem with Israel is that they wanted to be like the other nations. The Lord warned them over and over, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, Leviticus 18. You shall not walk in their statutes. Egypt, Egypt of course, was a symbol of the world. It, it was powerful. It was attractive, tempting. They had, you know, 500-some gods, some really cool idols. Israel had one god, and he was invisible. Egypt had the pyramids and the arts, and the, it was the intellectual and the cultural center of the world. It had a world-class army and sweet chariots and a king, a pharaoh who was a descendant of, you know, a god, a descendant of the sun. He had absolute power. They had food and dancing and parties and prosperity and success. Who wouldn't want to be an Egyptian? In Israel, what did Israel have? They had a lot of sheep and a God who couldn't be seen. And they were always tempted to go back to Egypt, go back to Egypt, go back to Egypt. In fact, Psalm 106 summarizes it the best. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. That about summarizes it. Adopted their sexual practices, adopted their idolatry, and they mixed with the world. And whenever Israel mixed with the world, it it was a bad time. Skip ahead to the New Testament. It's interesting that the writers like Paul, Peter, James, John all warn the churches of don't conform. Don't go back to your pre-converted days. Don't think like the world and act like the world. Of course, Corinth is a great example of this. You've heard it said 
It wasn't a problem that the church was in Corinth. The problem was that too much of Corinth was in the church. It became just like the world. But the Christian is to be countercultural, nonconformist. And frankly, the history of the church, church history, is a long laundry list of just accommodation and conformity to the world. Fearing man more than we fear God. I think of the current problem of worldliness and secularism. We, we, we have to understand the world has an enormous amount of pressure upon us, influence over us. There is an unrelenting, hostile propagation of the world's godless philosophy, and we hear it every day. Wave after wave of this powerful tsunami, a, a never-ending drumbeat, except homosexuality, except transgenderism, except sexual freedom of all kinds, accept all religions as equal and true, and there's an enormous amount of pressure to conform. The world's values are waging war on the church, and they have all the tools they need to influence hearts and minds. What are those tools? Let me just rattle some off. Think of the influence of screen time. Advertisements, magazines, Filters, maybe you've seen these filters on phones like Snapchat. They can take a plain-looking person and automatically airbrush it instantly to look like a model. You could say they are conforming your image into another image, a better-looking image. Well, the world has a very clear message on how women in particular should look and act. There's a message And you're hearing it every day, and the world is saying something to young girls, look like this. The world is saying something to young men, look for this. And the world has a message. And it doesn't take long before we start thinking like this and acting like this and living like this. We become like the world. We don't even know it. Think of the influence of film. The world has its message. It's very clear. The producers and writers of these TV shows are oftentimes... Teachers and philosophers of sexual freedom, naturalism, secularism, sometimes outright Satanism, like we, maybe you heard about at the Grammys this year. And truth be told, they hate Christ and all he stands for. Years ago, there was a show called The New Normal, which I just think illustrates this with its title. But it was a show that celebrated sexual freedom, and it was really a pulse on the world's message But it's the same spirit of this world that put Christ on the cross. And John the Apostle would say, don't love it. Don't love the world which is opposed to Christ. So the Christian needs discernment in these areas, screen time, film, music. There there are things that are obviously wrong, like pornography. But then there are things, various forms of social media, film, music, that are, I think, within the realm of conscience issues. But at a minimum, I'd say this. You need to know that these mediums have a message. At a minimum, be discerning. Don't buy their message. Don't cave to their morality. Don't get duped. Don't get sucked in. Don't get brainwashed. Music is another easy example. I don't know if there's anything that actually has more influence over how we think, our minds, than music. Music is so powerful. It's a gift, obviously. But it's so powerful. It matters what you sing. I know I've told this story before. I just thought of it last night. But the classic Veggie Tales, you know, the, the kids cartoon, quasi-Christian cartoon. And they had this, uh, 
One episode was on, uh, it was on, a spoof on Nebuchadnezzar. And the song was something like, the bunny, the bunny, oh, I love the bunny. I don't love my mom or my dad, just the bunny. You know, it was worshiping this, this uh, chocolate bunny as an idol. But the problem was, was these little kids would just be walking through King Supers or Whole Foods singing, I don't love my mom or my dad, just the bunny. And it became so powerful, so many kids were saying this, that they actually had to change the lyrics to something else. I can't remember what it was. But the point is, it's amazing. We get, we get this, these lyrics in our minds, and we actually start thinking about it, thinking like it. Don't be conformed. Be careful. And I'm not laying down a law here, believe me. But the principle is very, very clear. Don't be conformed. Don't think like this. Influence of technology, social media, video games, of course, pornography. Never has it been so easy for the world to come into our homes and minds and devices than through the Internet. Never has sex been easier to view. Never in history. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, got to be controlled. So think about this. Just be aware of it. As we're talking about don't be conformed to this age. These are the mediums. These are the things we've got to get a handle on. I'll just close with, uh, I think, the influence of universities and schools. Colleges and universities can be, can be great. All truth is God's truth. But they can also ruin and destroy people. How many people can you name who went off to college and their college professor mocked theism and they didn't know what to say? And deconstructionism ensues. The world system kicked them off their boat and they drowned. I want us to think more about this. We're going to come back to this verse, but I think an application for us is to let's ask the Lord. Let's go before Him in true humility. Let's be amiable and say, Lord, what would you have us do as a church? I mean, I'm asking this question. What would you have us do? We don't want to be legalistic or rigid, and yet... We live in a, a world just like 2,000 years ago that hates Christ. How do we be lights, salt, light, go out into the world and yet not think like the world, act like the world, live like the world? So that's my exhortation for us as a church, for you as individuals and families. Lord, what are the ways we are being conformed? Let's repent from those and let's change and think differently. If you're here today and you've not trusted Christ, I want to just invite you. Uh, this world is going up in smoke. We don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, but there is coming a, a cataclysmic ending to this whole story. Uh, it's about to get a lot worse. And your only hope is Jesus Christ. So cast yourself upon him. It's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. There's only one who saves, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So look to him. Trust him. Uh, don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed to him, and be transformed with how you think according to the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, and we know, I know, I have a long ways to go, and there are plenty of things that need reformation plenty of things that need to be turned from. So Lord, show us, help us to identify the patterns and the ways that we are like the proverbial frog in the kettle. 
And help us to be transformed and to think according to your word. Help us to be more biblical, better followers of Christ, more like Christ, not just in our theology, but in how we actually live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we transition to our uh, time of taking the Lord's Supper, please stand and sing with us. Christ the sure and steady anchor. <clears throat>